turn your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 18, if you would. An interesting uh, exercise in biblical studies is to try to identify a theme verse for every book of the Bible. Now, you can't always do that. That doesn't, not every book lends itself to one theme verse that summarizes. But for instance, the, the verse of last month that we memorized, Ephesians 2.10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that we should walk in them. I think is a theme verse of the book of Ephesians is the first half speaks of how God is, has worked in us and all that he's given us. And the second half is how we are to walk in those good works which he created for us. Well, I said last Sunday that I think Revelation 17 verse 14 could very well be the theme verse of the book of Revelation. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And as I've said many times, I believe the theme of Revelation is that the Lord Jesus is the triumph of the Lord Jesus over all his and our enemies and the fact that he shares that victory with us. And we see that summarized wonderfully in verse 14 of chapter 7, 17. In the book of Revelation, we actually find five enemies uh, identified and examined throughout the book. We, we see the Antichrist, who is the persecutor of the church, also called the beast. We see the false prophet, who is the deceiver of the church, false religion. We see the dragon or Satan who is the great enemy of the church orchestrating the beast and the false prophet and Babylon. We see people who bear the mark of the beast, those dwellers of the earth who are hostile to God and to his people. And finally, we see Babylon, the great harlot, the seductress of the church and of the entire world. And so as we're approaching the end of our study in the book of Revelation, just a few more chapters, we we read about the defeat and the destruction of these enemies of the Lord. In chapters 15 and 16, the seven bowls of, the, of wrath, of God's wrath, these plagues are poured out on the people who bear the mark of the beast, those earth dwellers. In chapter 17 and 18 here, we see judgment being meted out on Babylon, this great harlot. When we get to chapter 19, we'll see the white horse judgment, which involves defeat and destruction of the beast, who the Antichrist, as well as the false prophet. And then in chapter 20, the great white throne judgment which, which tells of the final defeat of the dragon of Satan himself. So last week in chapter 17, we, we studied the description of Babylon. What is, this, uh, what is Babylon like? And this morning in chapter 18, we will see the destruction of Babylon. Now, just a quick review. Who is Babylon? Or what is, Bab- what, what is Babylon? Chapter 17, if you'll follow, I'm going to read the first six verses, and it spells out for us God's description of Babylon. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood 
of the martyrs of Jesus. This is Babylon. <clears throat> now, we said last week, the beast, Antichrist, persecutes people who follow after the Lord. There's violence connected with the beast. Babylon is more subtle. Babylon seeks to seduce people away from following after God. And I would say in virtually every culture and every society, one or the other of these influences gains prominence. Well, so we speak of Babylon, the harlot Babylon. And it's really the value system of the world, the power and the pomp and the pleasure and the pride, the lust and the luxuries. The world holds out those excesses and those indulgences that we'll see described here in chapter 18. She's called the great prostitute. She's like a counterfeit of the church, which is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look for main points that we will see this morning in our text. First of all, the proclamation of the first angel, Babylon has fallen. And secondly, the proclamation of the second angel, come out of her. And then thirdly, we see the reaction, various reactions to the fall of Babylon. And then finally, the final destruction of Babylon. So let's look at this proclamation from the first angel. Babylon is fallen. It tells us that this angelic messenger has great authority. The earth is made bright with his glory. Now, Babylon, Satan has blinded the eyes of the world. People rejected the Lord Jesus because they loved darkness rather than light. Well, the angel comes and shines light, brings illumination and proclaims the destruction of Babylon. That which had been concealed from the eyes of men is now laid clearly open. Now, in chapter 17, the angel comes and speaks directly to John like a tour guide. I will show you. Come, I will show you. But here, John is observing these glorious angelic proclamations. And the fall of Babylon is proclaimed as already accomplished. Now, the fall of Babylon was also proclaimed earlier in chapter 14, verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. And so, as I've said before, Revelation is not to be read as a sequential timeline of final events. Rather, it's a cyclical retelling, telling and retelling of the final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we have this next cycle of judgment being carried out, showing God's judgment on Babylon. Now, in John's day, Babylon was most clearly represented by Rome and its oppression and its excess and its immorality. But in our day, what's Babylon? Where is Babylon? Babylon, as we read, is, is, we're going to see it's the world. It's the attraction. It's those, those inviting things, those attractive things. Some of them are corrupt and evil, those immoralities. But some are actually legitimate in their proper place. I think about the great cities of the world and just how appealing they are. In our own country, New York City is a fascinating place. You go to Times Square, you see the bright lights, you see the glitz and the glitter and the fame and the fortune. There's art, there's music, there's drama, there's theater, there's fashion. It is captivating and it can even be, I would say, intoxicating. There's industry, there's business, there's commerce of every imaginable sort going on. 
New York City is the home to the United Nations. The kings of the earth literally gather in New York City. There are docks and piers up and down the Hudson River where seafarers, where ship captains bring their wares and sell them to merchants. Sounds very much like the description of Babylon that we find here in Romans or Revelation chapter 18. In chapter 17, verse 8, it says, That woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, I want to point out, a lot of what we read in the book of Revelation is symbolic. It's not to be taken literally. It's not like we're to look on the map and say, okay, where is Babylon? What best meets this description? I don't want us to think of Babylon as a particular physical location as much as a pernicious spiritual influence. It is the world and its power imposed upon men of the earth. It's the center of the kingdom of darkness. So, I'm not saying Babylon or New York City is Babylon, okay? But the spirit of Babylon is alive and well in New York City, in Los Angeles, in Paris, in London, and in fact in Greenville, South Carolina. And we're kidding ourselves if we miss that. Simon Kistemaker on this text says this. He says, Babylon is the capital of the entire world, the center of the universal kingdom of darkness. That's not a particular location on the globe. It's a permeating influence. It is a symbol of the whole world hostile toward God and his Christ. And this world which has taken on God as its enemy now faces the penalty of total economic collapse. We read about the cargoes in verses 12 and 13. These lavish, expensive cargoes, gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, and so forth. Now, those things are not inherently evil in and of themselves. Marketing in those things is not inherently evil in and of itself. Until you get to slaves, that, I believe, is quite evil, and and we'll see that in a moment. I'll talk about that in a moment. But the excess and the infatuation and the intoxication with all of this stuff is great wickedness. The Bible calls it idolatry. Anything that we put higher in our affections than God is an idol. And when we, with natural eyes, look upon Babylon, wherever she is and however she expresses herself, she's beautiful. She's appealing to our human eyes. But make no mistake, friends, Babylon is a painted lady. She's dressed up. She's attractive. She's alluring. But her beauty is only skin deep. Let's consider heaven's perspective on Babylon. Fallen is Babylon, verse 2 and 3. Fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, for, for every unclean and detestable beast, for all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Babylon was rich with prosperity, but now we find in chapter 18, Babylon is laid waste. Babylon is left desolate. She's like a ghost town. She's she's a dwelling place place for demons and unclean birds and detestable animals, animals. And if we can look with these eyes, with biblical eyes, with spiritual eyes upon not only the present situation of the world, condition of the world, but the future destiny of the world, 
It changes our perspective. It sours that, that affection, that, 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 that pull that the world has when we see where it leads. Now, the angel's appealing here to Old Testament prophecies about Babylon. In Jeremiah 50, verse 39, Therefore, wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches will dwell in her. She shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. Babylon was laid waste, and that is symbolic of what the Lord says is going to happen to this world system he calls the harlot. Babylon. Dennis Johnson in his commentary says, Today Babylon looks like a confident and beautiful queen, a city teeming with energetic activity and overflowing with the good things of life. In reality, however, Babylon is even now a hag, a hollow husk, and the haunt of demons, defilement, and death. That inward reality will become outwardly visible as at Babylon's fall when her mask is torn away. Well, the angel gives us reasons for Babylon's destruction in verse 3. <clears throat> because the impact she has had on the nations, they've drunk the wine of her immorality. The kings have committed immorality with her. The merchants have grown rich. This, uh, this theme of, immor- of sexual immorality is repeated over and over in the book of Revelation, particularly as regards to Babylon. And let's be honest, the day that we live in, the culture in which we live that biblical command, do not commit adultery, is taken very, very lightly. The command to live with absolute purity is neglected over and over. The the issue in our day, sadly, is not about sexual purity. It's about consent. As long as you have two adults who consent, whose business is it what they do? It's God's business. That's whose it is. In in his word, the Lord says that immorality is a grievous sin. Not only against God, it's actually a grievous sin against our own bodies. And so we need to, to, to have spiritual eyes. We need to view all of life from God's perspective, including those issues of morals, of purity, of righteousness. If we've entertained ourselves with sanitized, glamorized depictions of sexual immorality, we're not going to recognize it for the evil that it actually is. Let this indictment sink in for a moment. The nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Have you ever watched a movie or a television show, and it's a romantic show, and it's heading in that direction? and you know it's coming, and there's something inside you that is actually rooting for that to happen? What in the world has happened to our moral compass at that point? We've been seduced. We've been drawn in by this Babylonian influence. It's a pernicious influence, and it corrupts the world. Christian, please pay attention. If we are not on guard, if we are not thinking biblically, if we are not swimming upstream and going against the flow, we can be taken in and seduced by the vile influence Babylon exerts. Now, you may not openly engage in immoral behavior. You may not go out and publicly do these kind of things. How many in this room indulge in pornography? What is pornography? It is sexual immorality. It is bringing Babylon into your heart. And do you see where Babylon is headed? And you see that we're told, come out of her. 
Pornography is a serious, serious problem, both for men and for women. And when you give your heart over to this kind of filth, you are placing yourself under the influence of Babylon. And all that the Lord condemns here in Revelation chapter 18. It's a serious matter. And so we have, secondly, this proclamation of the second angel. Come out of her, verse 4 and following, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me because I want to show you just, just briefly a number of statements in the New Testament calls to us to separate ourselves from worldliness, to come out as it were. Turn first of all to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2, verses that every serious Christian should memorize. Commit to our hearts and commit to our hands and our feet. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what's the fruit of being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Your bodies are presented to the Lord and not to immorality and impurity. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This world has a powerful influence that is subtle, that is appealing, that will take us captive if we are not on guard. Is it possible for a Christian to be taken captive by this philosophy and this empty deceit? If it weren't, Paul wouldn't have warned us against it, would it? Would he? So we must be on guard, and we must be aware of those influences. James chapter 1, please. James chapter 1 and verse 7. Excuse me, James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Is it important for us to remain unstained from the world? Absolutely. Our religion is not legitimate. It's not pure. It's not undefiled if it is shot through with worldliness. In James chapter 4 and verse 4, when James is talking about those conflicts that rage among Christians and those idolatrous desires that, that, uh, that create war within us, verse 4, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Babylon equals the world. This value system that is hostile to God, to the holiness of God, to the righteousness of God, and to the welfare of the people of God. First John chapter 2, verses 15 and following. First John 2, verse 15, do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is in the world or from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We see in Revelation chapter 18, the world, Babylon, passing away. Fallen, fallen as Babylon the great. uh, Paul and James and John, Peter also warn us about the dangers, the evil influences that come to us from the world. They expose the world for what it is and warn us to come out of her, as it were. Our Lord himself in Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break and steal, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And if we treasure things of this world, even things that are in themselves okay, it will Turn our hearts away from that heavenly, eternal treasure. It would be nice if, as we look at Babylon, as we look at that title on her forehead, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, it would be nice if every influence of the world had that label right across its forehead. But Babylon is much more subtle than that. The enemy is much more subtle than that. The world is more subtle than that. I've heard people ask, what does the world look like? It looks like jello. Now, what do I mean by that? Jello conforms to whatever mold you put it in. So, for the, in, in Jesus' day, the world was Pharisees. This, this worldly, self directed religion, this form of religion that made a claim to godliness, but they denied its power. The Pharisees were shot through with worldliness. They did their righteous deeds to be seen by men. That was worldliness, but they would have denied it. See, worldliness is not just prostitutes and drug uh, dealers and, and criminals of every sort, certainly those, but it's also anything that draws us away from pure and undefiled religion, pure and undefiled devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fern Proyther says, when temptations are subtle, as they frequently are in modern societies, vigilance, watchfulness, and understanding of the true nature of spiritual war are necessary. We must embrace vigilance, vigilance, watchfulness, and we must understand the true nature of spiritual warfare. The angel says, if you share in her sins, verse 4, you will share also in her plagues. The law of the harvest in Galatians 6, the, the, uh, Paul says, do not be deceived. For what a man sows, that he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you will reap destruction or corruption. If you flow to the, sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit you'll reap life and peace. You cannot sow to the flesh. You cannot sow to the, the whirlwind without reaping the wind. Or excuse me, sow to the wind without reaping the whirlwind. And you can't sow to the flesh and hope and pray for a crop failure. You will reap destruction. So why go there? It is not worth it. If you give yourself to the world, you will suffer its punishments. And again, the angel is appearing here, appealing here to the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 51, verse 6, which says, flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment 
he is rendering to her. This is the time. So flee while you have the chance. I, I want to spend just a moment because I've talked about the world and coming out. I want to talk about what has been called by many the doctrine of separation. What is the doctrine of separation? In, in Scripture, we see that the people of God are to touch no unclean thing. We are, to give, we are not to give ourselves to the influence of the world. Now, some of you grew up and your church talked about separation a lot, maybe too much. And everything was the world. And, and you heard it all the time and, and it, it, it seemed a little out of balance. Where I grew up, we didn't talk about separation. I didn't know what it was. In fact, the first time I heard of the doctrine of separation, I was preparing for my ordination council here at this church. What is separation? Now, that doesn't mean I didn't understand the need for a holy life. We just didn't use that language, per se, where I came from. But hear me, there is a straight and narrow ditch, or excuse me, straight and narrow path that God calls us to walk. Jesus says we're to enter by the narrow gate and we're to walk on this narrow way, but there's a ditch on either side of the straight and narrow path. On one side, there is separation from any contact with unbelievers at all. Uh, And in fact, they pile on these man-made rules of fundamentalism. Second degree separation, which means if this person is not separating from what I consider to be the world, not only do I need to separate from the world, I separate from him. So I need to know what you do, but also who you associate with before I can decide whether I can associate with you or not. And it gets to be second degree and even third degree separation. It goes, it goes to places that we should not go. There are also various forms of what I would call Christian monasticism, where we come out of the world in such a way that we don't want to place ourselves under any possible influence whatsoever, which means we have no influence either. Now, there's wisdom in how and where we, what, how, and where we expose ourselves to the messages of this world. But Paul says, I told you not to not to associate with anyone who's sexual immoral, not meaning those of the world, not meaning unbelievers. I'm talking about someone who professes to be a Christian. He said, if you were to not associate with, with immoral people in the world, you would have to come out of the world. He's making it clear that's not what we're to do. We are to be Christians who are in the world, but not under the influence of the world. In the world, but not conformed to the world, impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's one ditch that's overly separated, separated in an unbiblical extreme. But there's another ditch where there's moral laxity, there's carelessness, there's little emphasis on holiness, where there's conformity to the world's values, to the world's pleasures, to the world's treasures and lifestyles. Sinclair Ferguson that's a helpful article. It was in Ligonier uh, Magazine a while back. It's actually on their website. But he speaks of, uh, it's called Principles of Separation. And he says this, he says, speaks of the separation of the church within the world. The principle by which we live is not how can I avoid contact with the world so as to be separate from it. Rather, it is how can I live in the world yet be free from its influence and by my life actually expose its contagion. And then he references Ephesians 5:11. take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. We cannot expose the unfruitful works of darkness if we're hiding behind a wall of 
of religious separation and having no impact and no interaction and no uh, connection with those of the world. So we walk this narrow path, voiding the ditch on one side and on the other, because we recognize Babylon, verse 5, tells us her sins will be piled up as high as heaven. I think that's an ironic reference to the Tower of Babel. You recall the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis that men thought we can build a tower to our own glory and, and reach the heaven ourselves. The only thing that Babylon can build that approaches heaven is an enormous pile of sin. Dennis Johnson calls it a sky-high pillar of compost of sins. We're told their sins pile up as high as heaven, but that God has remembered her iniquities. That doesn't mean that God has ever overlooked even one single sin committed within his creation. He's not overlooked or forgotten any sins. He has allowed them to pile up, but now he's bringing judgment to bear, and he brings a double portion for all that she's done. Verse 6, mix her a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Sometimes the penalty for sin is more sin until people are utterly sick of sin. They have sin sickness. And what a mercy that someone would become sin sick while there's yet time to do something about it and turn and run to Christ. But the day will come when there's no turning where fallen is Babylon. She is pictured as drunk, as exposed, and under judgment, receiving as much torture and grief and sorrow as she also indulged in glory and luxury before. There's something of of a precision and a proportion to the justice meted out by the Lord. But even in the midst of her experiencing the judgment of God, she's utterly deceived. Look at verse 7. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since her heart says, I sit as queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. She believes herself to be invincible, but her destruction comes as sudden as it is intense in a single day or later a single hour. And I want us to to notice for a moment the reactions to the fall of Babylon in verse 9 through 20. The friends of Babylon are horrified as they view this spectacle. The kings of the earth and the merchants and the sea captains and those who sail on the key. See, they had admired Babylon. They had feasted on Babylon. They profited greatly from her excesses. They were seduced by Babylon and drunk with her immoralities. And now they're horrified to see her downfall. I want you to notice their laments, the kings of the earth in verses 9 and 10. Alas, alas. it says they they committed sexual immorality, lived in luxury with her. They'll weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment. And they will say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come 
All those luxuries in which they had indulged now go up in smoke. They were quick to indulge in her licentiousness. But now they see the smoke of her burning and they're horrified. They keep their distance. They somehow suppose that they might be able to avoid her fate. They cannot. And this great city of power, he says, your judgment has come in a single hour. Who would have ever believed such a thing could happen? It's interesting that here in verse 10, it recognizes that Babylon's calamity is judgment. It's not some unfortunate coincidence. It's judgment. And yet, they don't repent. The merchants of the earth, they weep and they mourn because their business, their commerce is utterly dried up. The, commerce, the, the cargoes that were listed here, they emphasize their luxury and their lavish goods. They trade in all manner of extravagant uh, 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 commodities and also in human souls, slavery. Now, slavery was extensive in the Roman Empire, and we think it's, it's, it's been eliminated in much of our world, and it has to an extent. But there's an underground slavery, human trafficking, and there are nations that still use slavery and accept it. And if you think, well, the New Testament's kind of vague. It speaks about slaves submitting to their masters. We see it exposed here as a vile practice, the, the trading in the souls of men. But the reality is, Natural man is a slave to sin. Natural man is enslaved to the influence of Babylon. So not Babylon, this world value system is still trafficking in the souls and the bodies of men. But on that day, the influence of Babylon will be broken and it will be left desolate. Look at their lament in verse 14. <clears throat> the fruit for which your soul longed is gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Let that lament sink in for just a moment. All that they have chased after, all they've longed for, all their, uh, their, 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 their craving and the longings of their hearts and souls, they didn't withhold from themselves any pleasure or luxury, and now it is all ripped away, gone, never, ever to be found again. Everything they set their hearts on is gone. Everything they had pinned their hopes on has collapsed. They set their hearts on earthly treasures, and those treasures have not been destroyed by moth or rust or thieves, but rather by the judgment of a holy God. And the cisterns that they ran to over and over are broken, and they've left them empty and desolate. And again, these, these merchants are shocked at the suddenness of her destruction in a single hour. And we see again the lament of the shipmasters and the sailors in verses 17 and following. They weep and they wail and they mourn, and it says they throw dust on their heads, which people don't do that much today anymore, but that's an outward sign of, of tremendous angst and distress because everything that they had delighted on everything they had devoted their lives to is now gone this vibrant port city that had made them rich lies in ruins and they're amazed it it it, it was destroyed in a single hour and the stunning reality with the 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 kings of the earth 
and the merchants and the seamen as they are shocked and distraught by the destruction of Babylon, and yet they still do not repent. They long for Babylon even while God is pouring out his judgment upon her because they're hardened and their wickedness, and they're stubbornly clinging to the trinkets of this world, even while those trinkets are burning before their very eyes. Vern Poitras says, even when people know they're sinning, and when they know that destruction follows, they cannot bear to give up their sins. They cannot give up the pleasures or wealth that they obtain from sin. That is the bondage of the natural man. Rather than turning to God in repentance, And in faith, they gnash their teeth at God and essentially say, how dare you destroy my idols? They cry out and lament, what city was like this great city? And we, the saints of God, can reply, what city will be like the new Jerusalem coming down from God in heaven? In Hebrews 11, we read of Abraham who set his heart on a city whose builder and maker is God. He didn't enjoy the luxuries and the comforts of this world. Hendrickson says, in the end, the harlot proves to be a great disappointment. Have you ever put all your eggs in one basket, as it were? You've ever devoted yourself utterly to some project, and it just absolutely blew up in your face, and it totally fell apart, and you were disappointed. Those temporal disappointments are there to warn us about that eternal disappointment from which there is no recovery on that great day of judgment. So I want you to see that now. I want you to learn it from God and his word rather than learning it the hard way. We all feel the pull of this world. We, we all are tempted to love the things that it holds out and promises, the pleasures and treasures. We feel the tug of its glory and the pull of its entertainments, its attractions. Now, again, some of these things, many of these things are all right. They're, they're legitimate in their proper place. They can be legitimate servants, but they're cruel and disappointing masters. And when our lives are devoted to anything in this world, we'll be left desolate like Babylon. In contrast, we come to verse 20, we see the saints and the apostles and the prophets and heaven itself rejoicing at the judgment of God. The final reaction, the kings, the merchants, the, 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 the seamen are devastated, but the saints of God and heaven itself rejoice. Now, this is an important statement. Please notice. Verse 21, rejoice over her, O heaven, And you saints and apostles and prophets, why? For God has given judgment for you against her. You remember chapter 6 in Revelation? The martyrs cried, how long, O Lord, until you you bring judgment on those, until you vindicate our blood? And he says, a little longer, when the full measure of those who would die for Christ is full, then I will mete it out. And here we find it happening. And the Lord says, Rejoice, for God has given judgment for you against her. The blood of Stephen and of James and of Peter, of Paul, of the apostles, of countless martyrs through the ages is being vindicated here. And when Paul says in Romans chapter 12, do not take vengeance because the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
It's difficult for us to entrust ourselves to God, repaying in the future. That's why revelation is so very important. And we look at this, and our knees grow weak, and we're, uh, we, we might be horrified at the specter. And yet there's a place where we must rejoice in the goodness and the wisdom and the justice of God, even in the destruction of Babylon. See, Babylon thought she could put the saints, the martyrs to death, and wash her hands of the blood. But in fact, her blood remains on her hands. Verse 24 says, In her was found the blood of prophets and saints, all who've been slain on the earth. She could not escape. And so we see the judgment of Babylon carrying out right before our very eyes. Finally, we have this object lesson in verses 21 to 24. A mighty angel takes up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Children, kids, what happens when you take a really, really big stone and throw it into really, really deep water? Well, you get a splash, right? It makes a big splash. And then what happens? That stone sinks. And it does not come back, right? It sinks to the bottom of the sea, and that's where it stays. And that is a powerful object lesson of the downfall of Babylon. Just like that millstone sinking to the bottom of the sea, never to be seen again. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And it will be found no more. There are five no mores in this text, verses 22 and following. Music will be heard no more. And it lists all these beautiful instruments. We have some of them here in our own service, and we love music. But the music of Babylon that has been idolized, that has so occupied the lives of men and women and put them in bondage even while it was entertaining them to death, music will be heard no more. The craftsmen will be found no more. The sound of the mill, industry will cease. The sound of the mill will be no more. The, lamp of a, the light of a lamp will shine no more. We hear of blackouts. This is infinitely worse. And even the voice of bride and bridegroom will be heard in you no more. The greatest occasions for human joy will be heard and found no more. These are legitimate things. These are great blessings when they are used for the glory of God. But even the greatest blessings that can be found in Babylon will be eliminated. But in the new Jerusalem, there will be music. We'll sing to the Lord a new song. More glorious than any song imaginable in this life. There will be work as we will serve the Lord with all our hearts. There will be, speaking of the mill, there will be an abundant harvest that indicate the, 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 the wonderful blessings that God pours out upon his people. There will be light, the light of a lamp, because there will be no need of sun or moon, because the glory of God will shine, and the Lord Jesus himself will be our lamp. And we will feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We will be the bride of Christ. These are wonderful gifts from God. They're sources of great joy. In this life, they can be made into idols. They can be perverted by the harlot Babylon, but they will all be redeemed in the new Jerusalem, and we look forward to that day. So, what do I want you to think about as you leave here? 
What do I want us to take from this very sober passage? This scene reminds me of the great stock market crash of 1929. Many of you know the story. The roaring 20s, there was this enormous prosperity, and it was coupled with enormous immorality and licentiousness. And then came Black Monday. The bottom fell out of the stock market. It crashed. Huge fortunes were rendered utterly worthless. Wealthy men, now destitute, were jumping out of the windows of their buildings in Wall Street and killing themselves. Powerful, influent merchants were left destitute. And it happened in a single day. In the 1990s, late 90s, there was a, a television show called Single, or excuse me, called Early Edition. Some of you weren't born in the 90s, that's okay. But the, the, the main character lived in Chicago, and he would receive an early edition of the Chicago Tribune a day before it was actually published. And it gives a story of some terrible catastrophe that happens a day before it actually happens. And so the, that, that, the plot of that episode would be, be then him going in and interrupting that terrible thing because he got the early edition and was able to forestall or to avoid or prevent that catastrophe from happening. Now listen, if you had been heavily invested in the stock market early October of 1929 and you'd gotten that early edition paper that said there's going to be a crash would you take what remaining funds you have and pour them into the stock market, or would you take everything that's in the stock market, sell it, liquidate, and protect your assets? Only a fool knowingly would remain in the stock market when he knows everything will collapse. And yet, there are fools who give their hearts to Babylon and they ignore the warning of God's word that says it will all be destroyed in a single hour. And everything that they have set their hearts upon will come to naught and they will be utterly devastated. How much wiser to come out of her, to run to the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to, uh, to, to repent of going your own way, of going the way of the world, of loving those things of the world and making yourself an enemy of God, repenting of those things. And placing your trust in the Lord Jesus, who truly is rich in mercy. This world will pass away. And like that millstone, it's just going to sink to the bottom. And it will be found no more. But the trinkets of this world will pale in comparison to the glories of heaven. How we are to set our hearts upon things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. On that day when Babylon is cast down, her friends, those who have drunk the wine of her immorality and are drunk by it, will weep and they will wail and they will be horrified at their downfall. But the one thing they will not do, they will not repent. So hear me. Now's the time to repent. Now's the time to turn away from going your own way and run to the Lord Jesus Christ to cast yourself upon his mercy because he is rich in mercy. But Pastor Jamie, you don't, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters in terms of judgment if you stay where you are, but coming to Christ, his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Please hear this invitation in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Don't wait. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God does not grudgingly forgive someone and going, ah, I hoped you wouldn't come and ask forgiveness. Boy, I was really hoping that wouldn't happen. No. All who come to him, Jesus says, I will never cast away. But then we read in Isaiah 55 that he will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon. And then the Lord says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What's he saying? For heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are abundant pardon and deep and rich compassion. We would not be that pardoning or that compassionate We would not be that merciful, so it's hard for us to conceive of how God can be that merciful. And yet, his ways are higher than our ways. He says, come. He says, come. Cast yourself upon his mercy. Cast yourself upon his grace. It is all of grace. We can never make up for the the sinful things we've done. We shouldn't even try. We simply come, just as we are. And we find our, our Christ is sufficient to cover all our sins. My favorite modern composer, or one of my favorites, is a man named Michael Card. He was really well-known more in the 80s and 90s. But he wrote an album uh, where he studied through the book of Revelation, and all of the songs in that book called Unveiled Hope are taken from the book of Revelation. I want to read you the lyrics from the city of doom, taken from Revelation 18. Come out of her, my people, and never go back again. For all her vulgar vanities have been heaped up as high as heaven. The nations drank her maddening wine. That God, now God remembered all her crimes. She'll be paid back double for all that she has done. Fallen, fallen, fallen as Babylon. Fallen as the city of Dune. The queen of every dark desire. Fallen by plague and famine and fire. Fallen as Babylon, the city of Doom. Never will the sound of a song be heard in you again. Nor the voice of the bride and the bridegroom, nor the echo of the workers' den. Your merchants were the world's great men by consumption's cult. Your greed and sin, and you'll become a spectacle. They weep and mourn and cry. Fallen is Babylon. Woe, woe is Babylon, the city of great power. Behold your doom. You will be consumed in one single hour. Oh, dear friends, come out of her come out of her. If you're a Christian, do not let her influences draw you away from your first affection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, flee to the Lord Jesus. He will never disappoint. He will never leave you devastated. He will receive all who come to him.